Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. My guest today will be no stranger to regular listeners of this program. Chris Mayer is Portfolio Manager of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund, where he manages money for the Bonner family. He's also co-founder of the firm along with Bill Bonner. I've known Chris for almost two decades now and have traveled with him to investment conferences around the world, from Vancouver to Vienna, Dubai to Nicaragua, from rural France to Washington, DC. I've even seen him white knuckle a donkey ride along the Great Wall of China when we visited Beijing with Bill back in 2010. That is an image I hope not to soon forget. As his many thousands of avid readers well know, Chris is not only a terrific writer and a world-class investor, he's also a deep thinker and an omnivorous reader, with a range of interests that span the written word from Ludwig von Mises to Ludwig Bemelmans and back again. As such, I'm always interested to hear what Chris is reading, what he's thinking about, and what's capturing his attention both in and out of the markets. In today's conversation, he shares with us some key insights from three of his favorite books, one on investing, one on pragmatic philosophy, and a popular holiday read with some insights into the nature of quality itself. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Mayer, up next. get to our program because I'm, I'm always interested uh, to mm-hmm. you as you're sitting in front of a healthily stocked uh, bookshelf there. Yeah. Um, did you, do you have a few, uh, a few titles ready for us to discuss I that. today? I, I dictated I, by your uh, agenda. So I picked out one investing, <laughs> one philosophy and one fiction. What should we oh, go? What do you want to do these in? Well, uh, let's, um, <clears throat> let's do the, let's do the investing first. Okay. All, All right. right. So what have we got here? Book, uh, this is a book link to called... these, by the way, in the in the description yeah. below, so people can can yeah. The uh, other check two are in print and easy. This one you're going to have to buy used, but um, it's Silent Investor, Silent Loser. Oh, okay. M- Martin Sosnoff, and it came out. This, this is, doesn't have the dust jacket. My copy is so red and worn; it like just falls open and it's got lots of uh, <laughs> lots of marginalia. Lots of, yeah, lots of marginalia. I see. I was going to say it came out in the eighties, I think. Yeah. 86. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I've, I've reread this book multiple times. And I think if I had to say kind of the two main important ideas out of this book, one would be uh, the importance of having a management team that has skin in the game and that are owners. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a yep. couple, you know, his chapter titles sort of give it away here. He has one he calls uh, um the case against custodial management, 
Uh, another one here, the enduring rape of shareholders. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> colorful. <laughs> yeah. Probably a chapter title you might not get away so with in really, 2021. Really, yeah, exactly. No, that wouldn't work <clears throat> now, would it? <clears throat> so he he really rails against uh, what he calls custodial managers, managers, just the professional hired hands that are there collecting their salaries and are mm-hmm. afraid to do anything or take any risks or, or be creative. And and he, he gives counterexamples of, managers where they was it was their company that they founded or they own a large share of it and how the behavior is different and so there's lines in there that i still remember to this day like he'll say you know entrepreneurial instinct equates with insider ownership or equity ownership okay you know he'll go through big companies where the directors own like less than one tenth of one percent of the entire company and you know why would they be particularly motivated to to do good things or make good decisions so that, that's Especially for the long term. Yeah, for the long term. So that's a very important idea I, I took out of that book. And ever since then, I've been just, that's like the first thing I look look at is the proxy, which is where you right. see compensation and ownership and the incentives and all that. So is that something you screen for like really early on in the process when you're kind of, you know, sifting yeah. through the however many names you've got on your radar? Absolutely. And it, it's mm-hmm. a very good filter <clears throat> because it wipes out a lot of stuff. I mean, most of the stuff that's publicly traded, you know, insiders don't own much of it because it's been sold. And and it doesn't necessarily mean investment would be bad. So, you know, there are plenty of examples of companies where where insiders don't own any stock, but there's been a great investment. It's not like Mm -hmm. a foolproof filter, but it's it's a filter that gets down to kind of the companies I want to look at have this good Mm -hmm. culture. So, yeah, it's screen screens early. And has that... um... Have you noticed in your thirty odd years or whatever of, of investing? Maybe not. Maybe not that long. Maybe I'm I'm aging us. <laughs> it's close to that. It's close to that. <clears throat> close to that. All right. But have you noticed a, a just in general a change in the amount of skin in the game that that you know just in in the general marketplace? Is it has it diluted over time, or does it kind of go in waves? Uh, any any discernible pattern? No, I would say one pattern is that much more common these days to use two classes of stock. Mm-hmm. So I don't like that. But um, almost all the new tech stocks that have come out, Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, they have two classes of stocks. So they have- To get preferred. And- yeah, they have like 10 voting rights to the regular guys that have one. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they're able to control the company with a lot lower level of, of inside ownership. So that's maybe one pattern I would see is much more broad acceptance of, two cl- of dual class stock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> And uh, as you're monitoring the behavior of those insiders, are there any kind of, I don't know, kind of red flags or tells, you know, when you, when you get a bit of, you know, motion insider selling, are you kind of monitoring that yeah, sort of well, stuff? I think to- that one of the big tells is, to me is always compensation. I mean, mm. <clears throat> egregious compensation is a red flag and that's mm-hmm. very common. You know, that's or, a sign that, that, that guys are cashing out or, yeah, you know, or they, <laughs> they're using the company as their, you know, it's their, cash machine and they don't particularly care right. about I'd rather shareholders really and that's kind of conversely a really good sign would be where we have a CEO that has very modest salary mm-hmm. uh, and instead they're you know benefit they're, they're getting most of their increase in wealth along with you when the share price goes up you know right seems like a pretty intuitive idea really I mean you want to be investing it's alongside very intuitive. I, I yeah. recall that uh, was it a Talib it was sort of a big touter of uh, skin in the game more recently. But this is so you, you've been writing about Sovnov, Soznov for years, and he's going. This right. is back in the eighties. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. I kind of hesitate to bring him out because every time I, people ask me for favorite investment books, I, I will grab one of his, at least in the list or whatever. But I was like, mm-hmm. ah, heck with it. I mean, I'll put it out there again anyway, because uh, I do think those ideas are important. Money management or investing as more of a conceptual exercise than one that's necessarily driven by numbers and empirical okay. analysis. So he has a whole thing in the beginning where he relates it to art. He's a big collector of art, abstract art, other kinds of art. And he mm-hmm. relates it to, to that saying that, you know, uh, we use numbers and numbers for whatever reason seem to have a kind of authority. You know, I, I, I'd say in the investment world, if you have a big detailed spreadsheet with lots of numbers, somehow it's more impressive and convincing to most people than something that takes a page written in very simple English, you know, mm-hmm. and he questions that whole thing about how we really don't know as much as we think we know. And, and I, I like those ideas as well. Yeah, well, that that kind of sounds like one of Bill's dictums, something like he doesn't trust numbers, even the ones that he's fudged himself. Uh, yeah. Along those lines. All right. Um, yeah, I guess that speaks to the kind of elevator pitch of a, of a stock, uh, you know, or, or a company. If you can explain it pretty simply, chances are that the company is going to be able to explain it to their consumers pretty simply. Yeah. Uh, pretty basic concept, easy to follow, difficult to kind of, you know, slip yeah, things through and fudge the numbers. I mean, think about how many, how many numbers and spreadsheets a company, you know, Enron or LTCM or whatever. I mean, they had quants and, and you know, all the all the uh, advanced math and Excel sheets in the world, but mostly in the end, it was to bury what they were, you know, to hide what they didn't want to be seen. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's kind of, that's the, the thrust of it. I mean, the, the idea of keeping it simpler and that, the, and that there are these bigger concepts or ideas that are more important to get right than, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not you've got the earnings per share number right for the next year or two or whatever it is, you know. Right, right. I, I really like that, yeah. And yeah, I like that idea about uh, about using art as a kind of uh, analogy there because it, it underlines as well, I wrote about this recently, about the, the subjective nature of value uh, and the way that we're always trying to you know, to, to put things in little boxes and little square things and stamp prices on them or stamp earnings on them. But, but really it's, it's the, the perceived utility that something has mm-hmm. to us that, that gives it its, uh, you know, it's us that gives it to give things their value. Absolutely. Um, uh, he mentions that. I remember there's one early on where he talks about a particular painting and, you know, why it went for the price that it did. And he said, well, it's because two princes wanted the same painting. <laughs> so they were, you know, they bitted it up until one guy finally said no. So that's what the price is, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and it's true in the stock market too. Why does anything trade where it trades? Because people are willing to buy and sell it there at this moment. You know, the notion that there's some abstract intrinsic value, value that must anchor everything is kind of a fiction. Yeah, and, and and the notion that it's somehow permanent as well. I mean, price is discovered in the second, in the moment, and yeah. you know, being irrational creatures as we are, we probably want to uh, you know to bid things to extraordinary levels. And you know, we were we were sending around some emails uh, yourself, Bill, um, Dan, and I about you know this huge big explosion in NFTs and you know the run up in prices there. Some of the some of the valuations you just look at there and scratch your head. Oh my God, half a billion dollars for a, a right. pointer to a picture of a die. I mean, it's, it's just right. sounds absolutely, right. absolutely insane. But, but um, you know, then you've got $450 million for, 
for, uh, you know, I think it was a de Kooning painting, which is a few, I mean, not my particular taste. Uh, as you said, you know, why, why does that have any value? Well, two people, <laughs> someone wanted to buy it and someone else wanted yeah. to buy it a little bit more. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, all right, mate. So we've got Soznov. I'll, I'll link to this guy uh, in the bottom for okay. uh, for our investment uh, uh, investment book. Anything else you want to say about that, or you, you want to move on to the next? Yeah, we can move. We can move on to the next one. Um, right on. So the next one was philosophy. So I picked out a, a slender book here that uh, it's called "Philosophy as Poetry" by Richard mm. Rorty, and uh, it's a collection of three lectures that he gave. Um, so Rorty, I guess you would call him an American pragmatist, kind of in that okay. William James, John Dewey, Charles mm-hmm. Saunders Peirce tradition. And I think that in general, pragmatism is a very interesting, useful thing to study as an investor or as, as a person generally. But uh, this particular thing I really like, it's, it's because, um, you know, Rorty sometimes get academic or whatnot, but in this, he's speaking very plainly, it's a lecture, so he delivered it. And uh, I guess the, there's a couple of big key ideas that I like. One is that he asks us to think about philosophers and even scientists more generally in the same way we think of poets. In other mm. words, they're not really discovering something that then is real and true, but they're giving us, they're giving us a description of something from their point of view. Mm. And, uh, you know, he has this line in there, well, if you think about the world that way, it really changes the way you think about a lot of things because then every theory and every idea can always be improved upon. It can always be redescribed again by somebody else. Um, and he has this line there I like that he says then the difference between uh, a great poem or the answer to a great poem is a still better poem. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you can translate poem to anything else. You could say that the answer to a great scientific theory is another scientific theory or a better one. And mm-hmm. better in his sense is not necessarily better in terms of rep- representation of some kind of reality, but better in the sense that it allows us to do more things. Mm, uh, interesting. I, I really like that that idea. Yeah, that that that, that brings up the uh, the concept of <clears throat> when we look at it in sort of more artistic uh, or poetic terms. That gives the notion of art, whether it be literature and the form of poetry or the visual arts, uh, you you find that that realm is always kind of struggling to throw off the old, to throw off the old yoke and always, you know, you go through, you know, whether it's the economics that do that too. I mean, yeah, the, uh, I was thinking, you know, the impressionists, um, you know, throwing off the, what was it? The Salon de Refuse or or however that's, (laughs) that was where they, they, they take on the, 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 the moniker that they were, uh, that they were insulted with and made it their own and then said, Hey, well, this is the new school. We're, we're throwing this off, but yeah, go all the way back. Reformation, counter-reformation. It's all this process of, um, of trying to go in new directions and explore new things. Very, <clears throat> very interesting. So do you find that applicable to uh, your investing in it? Yes. Way, I or? mean, it just makes you change, uh, changes the way I think about anything, you know, the so-called experts, when they say certain things, you know, I think mm-hmm. of them as well. That's just one story. And that's right. one story. And there are other stories there. Even if it seems like a really good story today, it doesn't mean that there couldn't be a better story later. <clears throat> I remember there's another line in the book that he says, you know, there's nothing that we, we've talked about that we can't talk about differently. So mm. 
that seems to cover a lot of ground there too. And so whether it's the mouth of some expert economist or whether it's some great investor who says something, you know, there's, it's not the end, uh, end of the discussion. It could always be another story, another way to look at it later. And so I, I really like that idea. Um, yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting to think too, that I was just having this discussion with uh, a, a, actually a lady in the bank yesterday. <laughs> she got talking to my little daughter who had a little frozen doll and, uh, and uh, we got to talking. She had some some kids there as well, and we got to talking about <clears throat> about the stories of you know that kids have and how this is actually a pretty long line in the bank. <laughs> but so uh, <laughs> got to talking about how a lot of the stories that we retell, even our children, uh, harken back to really ancient stories. I mean, you know, as something as you know seemingly frivolous as a as a kid's cartoon goes all the way back to uh, you know in some ways the odyssey i mean we have you know cartoon characters going into the underworld uh yeah. you know the the eternal themes of jealousy and vengeance and um and yeah. hubris and all these kind of emotions that that we see playing out you know whether it's in a in a piece of poetry that resonates throughout the ages or when we look at something like a stock market i mean what what else is a stock market but a big canvas for all of the you know hubris and uh, machinations of human emotion that that uh, <clears throat> that we yeah. project out into the world from booms Absolutely. to busts to manias and also reminds me of Carl Jung and his ideas of the archetypes the same thing you know mm. the wise old man the maiden the hero you know right it's all right. these, these eternal archetypes recur. yeah oh. eternal archetypes yeah, yeah I think probably studying. Yeah, and studying those, uh, you know, you might not be able to see around the corner necessarily, but but they do tend to re repeat themselves with some manner of predictability, if yeah, not regularly. What you said about projecting, you know, that's another key point is that, and we talked about value isn't really out there and intrinsic values, you know, what we make it. And he generalizes that same point, you know, that mm -hmm. the truth isn't out there, you know, we we say things and we make distinctions and, mm -hmm. and so those things can change, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I remember in our last discussion, you were talking about uh, Alfred Krasibsky and yeah. a similar kind of idea with, yeah. you know, there's, there's uh, what was it? Uh, the map is not the terrain. I think it was his. Yeah. Map's his not kind the territory. Yeah. It's not the territory. That's it. But, but that we, we project, um, you know, classifications, um, onto things, and but it's not like there's something. I think your example was there's this thing called the economy in the backyard, and we can go out and point to it. Hey, look, there's <laughs> yeah. the economy. Look at That's it right. wagging its tail and doing what we That's say right. it's supposed to do. Uh, but I think when when you appreciate um, concepts like that, it's it underscores all the more uh, how ridiculous it is when people think that because there's this thing that we can look at now we can start tinkering with it and we can make it, we can manipulate it and make it do what we want it to do when these things have lives all of their own and they're highly right. complex uh, concepts. And once you get it too, it colors the way you process all this stuff. I mean, you know, investors will always talk about uh, value versus growth. And there's always this, you know, now buy value, now buy, buy growth. And it's, again, we're treating it as if these are these entities that were readily identifiable out there, growth, this is value. And they're just these things. Right. But it doesn't work that way at all. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a matter of opinion, you know, some people, and, and a lot of times they're based on very arbitrary numbers, it might be price earnings or price to book. And so companies can switch in and out categories. I mean, right. 
it's not uh, a very stable concept in any way. Um, yeah. And also it, there's, you know, there's another thing he says in the book. I remember you, you, you uh, jog my memory when you were talking about, you know, these entities have, have some separate nature and he goes, you know, these, we have all these expressions like gravity or rights, human rights. And, mm-hmm. and he says, we shouldn't treat them as noises and marks, which I really, uh, I really like that idea. You know, they're yeah. not things, they're just, uh, they're words and noises we make to, to describe things. I think, yeah. you know, when you bring all that stuff down to earth that, uh, I mean, it's good for you because it lowers the power of words to control your thinking, you know, in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people use these words and they seem to have magic power over people. You know, you can right. say certain things, get them riled up. I can say certain other things and, you know. Yeah. Uh, weird. I always think about that with, uh, even just with studying other languages. I mean, you hear somebody use, um, you know, what what might be considered a highly offensive malediction in one <laughs> language. Right. And if you don't, if you don't speak that language or you, you know, you've only got a mild kind of comprehension of it, just it's like water off a duck's back means nothing right. to you. It's just meanwhile, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, other people are freaking out. Oh my God. How, how do these, how could he possibly say that and tell other people? It's just nothing. But um, <laughs> I have a yeah. funny story about that, but it's off color. So it'll have to be. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put that in the, we'll put that in the, in the bonus material. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it takes. All right, mate. Uh, should we get onto the onto the yeah, fiction? What do we got? All right, so the fiction one. You know, I don't read that much, as much fiction as I used to, but I did mm-hmm. read this book earlier in the year when I was on vacation, and it's a famous book. So it goes against the grain of my general picking <laughs> things that no one has ever heard of. You, you liked it despite your your best yeah. self. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very famous. People have talked about it for a long time, but I've never read it. I finally got around to reading it, and uh, yeah, I really liked it. It's called, it's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, classic. Yeah. yeah. All right. 1967. Very and, cool. um, ah, I mean, I, uh, you want to get your hog really and get out on the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like the way he, <clears throat> he weaves that sort of road trip around the philosophical ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't even know where to start with some of them. I mean, it's just this general attitude kind of, uh, of questioning and thinking like he has this long meditation on quality, but well, what is quality? You know, what do we mm-hmm. say when we say something is quality, what are we talking about? And, you know, there's a lot about that. And there, there are other little things he says that, that I remember that I like. Some of them are well-worn ideas. Like, you know, he talks about, you want to improve the world that you start with yourself. That's mm-hmm. an old idea from, you know, Voltaire and tend your own garden to Goethe, yeah. and, you know, sweep your own doorstep and all that. But, uh, and and now uh, nice Jordan Peterson is uh, make your own bed or something make like that. So bed whatever, same kind of deal, right? Same, same kind same of idea. Repetition, yeah. He has that, and he makes other little interesting observations. And I remember there's one where he talks about uh, you know you're never dedicated to something that you have complete uh, faith in or complete confidence in. And he uses the example of the sun. He says no one is a, uh, no one is a fanatic shouting that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Right. <laughs> So it's interesting because then he says, you know, people have these political or religious beliefs that they get all bent out of shape about. Why is that? His idea is that because they are in doubt. Yeah, things they don't they don't understand, can't comprehend. They don't understand it. Um, so there's a lot of interesting ideas about those kinds of things in the book. I mean, it, it's a big fat book, really. But it's really like three books in one. There's one. There's the narr- There's a road trip. Mm-hmm. Then there's like this personal narrative, <clears throat> and then there's the philosophical discussion around quality. Yeah, his musings and that. I have like you read the, this book? I have read the book. It's been some years, but uh, 
I remember reading it uh, after I'd done a couple of road trips across the US, not on on motorcycle, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it just you know in in uh, in the car actually I drove one I, I drove a U-Haul across the country once carrying a our friend Eric Fry's uh, possessions from Connecticut to Southern California without a driver's license. I might nice. hastily add, but yeah, that, <laughs> I, I like that idea. You know, that's another you know another expression of of uh, the idea of america i think and it goes back to you know Kerouac's on the road and this idea of you know westward um you know almost kind of peeking over the mountains you know that kind of frontiersmanship attitude yeah. i think that's a very american um uh, you know expression of you know discovery expansion whether that's discovery geographically or as uh Pierce says right. in this book uh, you know kind of self-discovery right uh, yeah, I mean, but, there's a lot of great road novels. Kerouac, yeah, this one, <clears throat> yours is yours is added to the list of. Road yeah, novels. there's a big, big road trip uh, there. Bit of a road trip there. Yeah, a little, very, very little American no idea definitely is. Nod to some of the greats there. <clears throat> All right, I, I'm going to add one, uh, one last because just since you mentioned it was a, a holiday read, which sometimes I think are the best. I don't know if it's just because. Your mind is maybe more ready to accept fiction or to be taken away into sort of a fictionalized setting because you're relaxed and maybe you've got the salt water lapping at your ankles or, you know, yeah, you're I just think that's you're, part of it. I mean, that's when I read fiction too. I, this, I was out in the Smoky Mountains out in North Carolina. We were way oh, out yeah, in this nice. like sheep farm that turned into a B&B &B and very remote, very isolated, a lot of quiet time. It was, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I think there's something to what you're saying there. Yeah, so uh, this uh, I picked up a book. Actually, I was uh, in, I guess it was a month or so ago. Now uh, I was over in Greece with my wife for her. Um, she had a, um, a symposium over there. It was a virtual symposium, so we didn't actually have to be there, but we uh, we used it as an excuse to get over and visit some uh, some old ruins. And <clears throat> anyway, went down the beach one day. I forgot my book, so I found myself in one of these little you know mini marts. <clears throat> yeah sifting through the, uh, the, the scant helpings. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I found this book by John Mole and, uh, but the title of the book was it's all Greek to me. And I didn't have high hopes for it because, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of the best of slim pickings, but I found it really pleasant to read. And, and the, the, the basic gist of it was that, um, it's sort of semi-autobiographical, but as a, as a 40 year old, ex-banker or as a 40-year-old banker, he decided to give himself the birthday present of quitting what V.S. Naipaul uh, describes as the embarrassment of employment. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so he moved his, uh, his long-suffering family, four kids in tow, and his wife out to the um, out to a Greek island and, you know, bought a, a rundown pile of rocks with goat droppings everywhere and a roof half collapsed and whatever. So it's just a story about him sort of returning to the simple life, uh, you know, saying farewell to the, the kind of rat race in the nine to five and just going out into the middle of Greece, reading yeah. philosophy and history and writing novels. So that mm. obviously resonated, that, that found a pretty sympathetic ear sure. uh, for me. And obviously reading it on a Greek island didn't, uh, didn't help. Oh, it didn't hurt rather. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. I thought you were going to say you read Henry, Henry Miller's Greek book, which I, one of my favorites of his. The Colossus of Marusi. I read that was, uh, you gifted that to me 
quite a few years yeah. back. And yeah, one of my favorites of of his, along with um, Stand Still Like the Hummingbird and oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Oranges of Hieronymus also. Bosch. Yeah. yeah. I, could, I feel like we could do a whole episode just on Henry, <laughs> Henry Miller. <laughs> Mate, uh, I know you've got uh, a, a busy schedule, another call coming up. I've got to dash off to the airport actually myself. So right. uh, I'm going to thank you very much for your time. As yeah, usual. Always, good to, always fun to be on with you talking about books and ideas and things. So for sure, we'll uh, do it again. I'm, I'm sure. Yep. Hopefully uh, sometime soon we'll be able to do uh take this mic out to uh, a pub or a cafe or a, or yeah, a, a, a backyard barbecue setting and do it in person. That'd be fantastic. Awesome, mate. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.